0: Hey there, I'm Adam Demetrician, the lead pastor at Pathways Church in Appleton, Wisconsin. And this is our podcast. I hope this message inspires you, feeds your faith, and ultimately leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Well, good morning, Pathways. How we doing? Good? Good, good. Well, you know, uh, there's a lot of people who don't like to talk about addiction, especially in church. But I believe that all of us are addicted. All of us have some type of compulsive, whether it's a psychological or a physiological response and need for something. What's that something? That something according to scripture is called sin. And none of us are exempt. We all know how to sin because we're born with a sin nature. It comes natural to us. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, Adam, what's your scriptural support for that? Well, I think you can relate to this verse. Listen to what it says in Romans 7.15. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says it this way. He says, I do not understand what I do. Have you ever experienced that? I do not understand what I do. I I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Sounds to me like somebody is battling an addiction. And friends, this is not Judas Iscariot writing this verse. This is the Apostle Paul. He is saying, I am a slave to sin. In our language of today, he would say this, that sin is addictive, uh, I don't care what form fashion substance if there is a life controlling addiction throughout the veins of humanity it is three letter word s i n Sin. Sin destroys, it kills, it warps our mind, it distorts our relationships. Every perversion known to humanity is a root cause of sin. Now listen to what he writes later on. Look at the screens with me. I really like how the Living Bible puts it. He says this, he says, how true it is and how I long that everyone should know it, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. That's God's solution to sin. Praise God for that. But look at this next phrase. Paul says this, and I was the greatest of them all. Guys, this is the apostle Paul. This is the individual who took three missionary journeys and spread the gospel in the known world of the first century, traveling roughly 10,000 miles, writing 14 of the 27 New Testament books that you hold in your hand today. This is the Apostle Paul, who was arguably the second most influential person in the spread and rise of Christianity, other than Jesus Christ himself. And he said, I was the greatest sinner of them all. I don't know about you, but when I read that this week, I thought, whoo, heaven help me. If Paul's saying he's the greatest sinner, then what are we? Like, we must be really messed up. Anybody feel that way right now? Right? Any, all in favor of some hope? Yeah, I need some hope after I read that verse. I'm like, Paul, 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 buddy, Paul, Paul, you're not that bad. Trust me. You're not bad. If you knew me, you're good, Paul. You and Jesus. Okay. Right, Paul says, I was the greatest of them all. We all need hope. Why do we need hope? Because all of us struggle with sin. All of us not only need to be saved from our sins, but we need to gain momentum and energy and victory over the sin cycles in our lives. And so if you're visiting with us today, we're in part six of our study in the Old Testament book of Ezra. And you might be thinking, Ezra, really? Like Ezra, I didn't even know that was in the Bible. I thought that was like an old band in the 90s called Better Than Ezra. Really? That's a book of the Bible? Yep, it's in the Bible. Well, then the question becomes, how can God speak to me through this remote portion of Scripture in this book called Ezra? And if you are a guest today, this is a safe place because to be honest, there's not a lot of Christians who have read the book of Ezra, okay? (laughs) But here's the reality. There is something applicable and there is content that can transform your life in the book of Ezra. You know why I know this? Because this is what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, 4. He says it this way, for everything that was written in the past, he's talking about the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, every verse, every chapter, every book in both testaments was written to teach us why, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might find Hope. There's our word again. All of us are in need of hope because all of us are in the same boat together and we all battle sin. And while we don't like to talk about it and while it's uncomfortable when you say something like addiction or some, some term like that, we, 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 we as, as Christians sometimes, we want to kind of separate ourselves and say, oh, not me, but all of us friends. If Paul says I'm the greatest of them all, then we're all in it together when it comes to battling sin and things in our lives. And so we need the hope of the gospel. We need the truth of Ezra to speak into our lives. And we really get to carry this message of hope to the world because all of scripture points to one individual, one hope, one savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, that's why we need to get the message out. You know, Easter is only five weeks away. Easter is five weeks away. And our theme this year is that hope is alive. And you and I, we get to be carriers of this message. We need to extend the hope. We need to invite people to be a part. We have three services at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. And I want you to extend an invitation. In the weeks to come, you're going to have cards at your seats. You have social media of opportunities to reach out and to share the message. Because listen, here's the reality. People lose faith when they lose contact with people of faith. When you hide, remember the old, little song we used to sing in kids' church. I'm gonna let my lint hide it under a bushel. No, I'm gonna, right? Okay. Same principle. I know I got the melody all wrong. I apologize. I'm not musical, but you you know the song. Okay. All right. Deal with it. If you don't know, look it up on YouTube. All right. That wasn't very Christian. I'm sorry. Uh, I got completely insecure about my singing voice. Um, My point is, we can spread and get that hope out and invite people. And, you know, I just felt prompted to say this as I was sitting down there during worship. I was kind of thinking over my talk in this section of the message, and I thought to myself, you know, there might be a fear, in some of you are like, you know, if we get the message out too much, our church is going to grow, and then it's going to feel too big. And I just felt prompted in my heart to say, listen, first of all, Our church is never going to feel too big if we care about each other and we do one another really well. And you know what? As your pastor, I just want to say I love each and every one of you. And if I don't know you, my mission is to know you, to know your name, and to care about you. And I hope the same is true for you. You know what makes a church feel impersonal when people are impersonal? That's the truth. Because no one individual can do it themselves. That's why we set up small groups and circles and, and ways in which we can connect friendships. That is so important. So I just want to alleviate any fear. As we continue to grow, listen, this isn't going to feel impersonal because you're not an impersonal church. Because every single person matters because we have leaders, team leads, staff leads who care about us, each other. We care about one another and we will continue to stay connected as the body of Christ. Amen. All right, good. All right, so let's go and do a little biblical background on the book of Ezra. If you are a guest, let me, you're kind of jumping in part six. So We're almost at the end of the movie. Let me kind of give you a quick overview of Ezra, and I can do this succinctly. Ezra is the book. It's the true story of God orchestrating his people, approximately 50,000 Jews coming back from Babylon to the holy city, to Jerusalem, in order to accomplish one thing. That one thing is to rebuild the temple. And if I could summarize, chapters 1 through 6, here's what takes place. The people come back. God moves the heart of Cyrus, a Persian king, a pagan king, to to release the people back. They build the temple. Remember, they give of their gifts, their skills, their money, and they say, we're going to do this together. They build it. Mission accomplished. The temple is rebuilt after chapter 6. In fact, you can read the dedication that uh, falls in verses 13 through 18. It takes place in 516 B.C. So about 500 years before the birth of Christ, the second temple is rebuilt by the first wave of Jews led by Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Mom, if you're looking for a name of your uh, firstborn, Zorubbable is wide open. You can call them Zoo, Bubble, or Zorubbable, whatever you want to do, okay? That's a great name. You can pick that one up, all right? Zorubbable, all right? So, um, as we come to chapter seven, there is something that I never knew before that takes place between chapter six and seven and I've been studying scripture, I have a seminary degree in biblical studies. I did not know what I'm going to share with you next, okay? Between chapter six and chapter seven, there is a 60-year gap between those two chapters found in the book of Ezra. Now, we don't know a lot of what takes place in those 60 years, but one thing we do know, we know that there was a young woman who was raised up by God who became who became known as Esther, Queen Esther, and she saved her people from mass genocide, okay? We know that that takes place in those 60 years between chapter six and chapter seven. So as we come to chapter seven, here's what we're gonna find. We're gonna meet Ezra for the very first time in the book of Ezra. The very first time, he's gonna lead a second wave of Jews back to Jerusalem, Now, remember, this is 60 years in between chapter six and seven. This is the first time that we read of Ezra. This is what it said. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month for the gracious hand of God was on him. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Uh, next week. Don't miss next week. Make sure you invite friends and family. We have powerful stories about three uh, stories that we're going to share, testimonies of God's uh, hand in people's lives. So you won't want to miss that. Anyways, he comes back and, and uh, here's what scripture says, verse 10. For Ezra devoted himself to the study and in the observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching and, and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Let's stop there for a moment. Simply put, Ezra was a man of God. If you read earlier in chapter seven, he was a direct descendant of Aaron, who was uh, Moses' brother. Aaron was part of the Levitical uh, tribe, which was uh, the, the Levites were the priests. So Ezra was a priest, born and reared in Babylon. He was a man after God's own heart. And we know two things about him. We know that this took great Pursued in perseverance because here is somebody who was not raised in the Holy Land, not in Jerusalem, and yet he pursued God so much so that as a priest living as as an exile, he was given to the study of the law, to the Torah. He wanted to strictly adhere and teach, observe God's ways, God's will through God's word. The second thing that we know about Ezra is simply this. Ezra was not high on comfort. He wasn't a guy who was just gonna play it safe and be comfortable. At this time, he was older in age, and this older priest, why do we know this? Because he decides to go back to Jerusalem. Why would he do this? Why not just be a scholar in residence? Just kind of hang out, you know, like, you know, hey, I got my THM, MDiv, DMIN, PhD, like I'm the Mac Daddy when it comes to Babylon and the Old Testament Torah in uh, Jerusalem culture, history, studies and ancient Near East language. That sounds pretty official, doesn't it? Okay, so he could have done that. Why does Ezra go back to Jerusalem? Let me tell you why. Because he wants to be a part of the movement of God. This older priest wants to see God move in his day in unprecedented ways. And so he's going to give up everything, a cushy, comfortable lifestyle in Babylon. He's going to come back because he wants to be a part of the movement of God. You wanna be a part of the movement of God? Do you wanna be a part of something that's bigger than yourself, bigger than just your little itty bitty life and your mortgage and your SUV and all the bills that you have to pay? Do you wanna be a part of a movement where God is assembling a group of people to put the way of Jesus on display in a community such that people's lives are changed for eternity? This is what Ezra wanted to be a part of. That's what he did. That's why he went back. So he goes back and he leads this second wave back to Jerusalem. And when Ezra returned, the text doesn't tell this. this, but I would be assuming that he had this great expectation that the people of God were doing some amazing work, that the temple was rebuilt, that God was on the move. After all, I mean, 80 years earlier, their, their, their moms and their dads had just, you know, come and rebuilt the temple. God was on the move and he was going to be so excited when he brought this second wave back to Jerusalem. Like he was salivating. He was thinking, this is it. This is what I've been waiting my whole life for which by the way, if you're into Old Testament history, just a parenthetical uh, side note here, on a historical note, there was one more wave of exiles that would return from Babylon in 444 BC. It was under the leadership of Nehemiah. Remember what Nehemiah did? He rebuilt the walls. So when you're looking at the Old Testament, you have Ezra, you have Esther, and you have Nehemiah that are chunked together with a few minor prophets like Haggai that we've referenced in weeks past. Okay? So Ezra comes back. What does he find? Does he find everything is just like, man, it is so good. He's so excited. Is this what he finds? No, he doesn't. That's not the case. Things are broken, very broken. Look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 on the screens. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me, and this is what they reported to Ezra. The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. What was one of the detestable practices? Well, this is what the detestable practice was, verse 2. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. What Ezra experienced when he had gotten back to Jerusalem was that the leaders, the, the leaders, the, 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 the key volunteers came to Ezra and they said that there's a problem. And the problem was this. The problem was that God's people were intermarrying. And while this seems benign, while this seems like it doesn't have great impact on the human spirit and soul, God strictly prohibited this in his law. In two different points in the first five books of the Old Testament, God says, hey, listen, I don't want you to intermarry with people with surrounding nations. Because when you enter into Canaan, the promised land, they're going to have some detestable practice, one of which was child sacrifice. And so God said, listen, for your protection, I want to make sure that you only marry people who fear me as the one true living God. I want to read to you just uh, the essence of one passage in Deuteronomy 7. It says this, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will, here's why, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly and will quickly destroy you. God's pretty clear about his command there. God says, I don't want you to be legally bound in marriage with anyone outside the faith. Now, hear me clearly. God has nothing against interracial marriage. God has nothing against intercultural marriage. Why? Because God doesn't look at the externals. He's not into appearances. God is into the heart in the internal way. He views the heart. And what God does have a problem with, he has a problem with, interfaith marriage. Why? Because God knows it's for our best, our protection. If we marry somebody who doesn't see God the way that we see God, or we don't, or we marry somebody who doesn't worship God the way we worship God, he knows in five or 10 years, especially if you are your first or second kid, it's going to create a major problem in your life. Now, some of you are right now thinking to yourself, so, 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 let me get real practical right now. If you're in high school, you're in the university, you're in middle school, you're five years old, hear Pastor Adam loud and clear. When you want to get married, make sure you find somebody who is a Christian believer. If you are a believer, if you're a believer, you find another believer, because that will be the best for the best chances you're going to have to stay married and continue to raise a godly, healthy family is if you marry another believer. You say, Adam, you say, Adam, thank you. You say, Adam, uh, uh, can you give me another verse on that? I would love to. (laughs) 2 <laughs> Corinthians 6, 14, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Do not be joined together with those who do not belong to Christ. How can that which is good get along with that which is bad? How can light be in the same place with darkness? What God is saying is you can't be legally bound to someone who doesn't see God the way you see God. All right. Oh, can I just say one more thing? Don't think to yourselves, and can, can I really speak? Um, well, I don't know. Uh, sorry, this is just kind of real time. Don't think to yourselves that you are going to, well, you know what? I'm going to win them to Jesus. You know what we used to call that when I was growing up? That was called missionary dating. You didn't have to go to China or to uh, uh, some remote place in Africa. You were just going somewhere in Nina and you were finding somebody who wasn't a believer and said, you know what? They are so hot, I'll make them holy. That usually doesn't work. Because they end up losing their hotness and you end up losing your holiness. No, seriously. I know, I know. usually, I'm I'm just being honest, usually they have more of a pulling effect away on you than you have on them moving toward. And especially then when you have kids, because then you have this issue. Well, how do we want our kids? And one says, man, I want them to be in church. No, the other person's like, no, they need to make their own decisions. That creates, okay? All right, enough of that. Uh, So, Ezra gets the news of the people's sin. What what how does he respond? What's he do? He comes back. He hears the news. He thinks everybody is going to be like God is at work. He hears the news that they're intermarrying and then there's this major problem. How does Ezra respond to their sin? Look at chapter 9 verse 3. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled the hair from my head and beard, and I sat down appalled. He pulls his hair out. He pulls the hair from his beard out. Can you imagine that? Yanking the hair from your beard. The, the, The term there in Hebrew, appalled, literally means numb. He was numbed by the report that he heard about God's people and their sin. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. For the entire evening, Ezra is sitting on the ground, pulling out his hair and his head and his beard, and he is shell-shocked. The entire day until evening sacrifices. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn. And what's he do? He fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord. And he prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to. To the sky. I can't believe it, God. I can't even raise my head to you, God, because I am undone. This is unbelievable, God. How could your people be sitting again? 150 years earlier, God disciplined his people. If you remember Hebrews 12, one through 11, he uses people in our lives to discipline us. He rose up the Babylonians. He raised up the Babylonians in order to take them into exile. Then by God's gracious hand, he moved the heart of Cyrus, this pagan king, to allow them to return. And what are they doing when they return? After 60 years, the temple's rebuilt. They're ready to make sacrifices. They're doing it again. They're in a sin pattern. They're addicted to sin. Now, if you understand Old Testament theology, this is a repeated pattern that you're going to find through the Old Testament. Just read the book of Judges. It's cycles of sin. Which, by the way, how many times do you see somebody having a reaction to sin like this? I mean, we, we, we in, in our modern church today, we, we don't have a lot of reactions to our own sin this way. And this wasn't even Ezra's sin. Ezra wasn't intermarrying. This was his people's sin. He was so broken by it. Well, how did the people respond? Look at chapter 10, verse one. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down, Before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him and they too wept bitterly. The people are broken. What are they broken over? Their sin. They finally get it. Oh my word, I can't believe it. It was the moment, the realization that what we are doing relationally is wrong. We're sabotaging ourselves. We're hurting our future families. We're going to dilute the power and the, the movement of God because of our sin. They gathered around Ezra, all of them, they're like, we get it. We understand this is wrong. And what do they do? They, they weep bitterly. So at this point, as I'm reading and studying the text, it's pretty heavy, right? I mean based on how everybody feels in the room right now, I I felt the same way as you did. I'm looking at the text, I'm studying this, and I think to myself, here's the question that kind of comes across my mind that I want to offer to you. Here's the question. How do you respond to sin? How do you respond to sin in your own life? How do you respond to sin in lives of others around you? How do you respond to sin in our nation? How do you respond to sin in our world? Does it grieve you? Does it hurt you? My heart goes out to some of you. Some of you are in the legal system. Some of you serve as law enforcement officials. Some of you thank you for your service. Some of you see some of the hardest things in humanity. And if we're not careful, our hearts can get callous towards sin. And because all of us are addicted to sin, it's easy for us to, to respond to sin in ways that are not godly and healthy. Ways in which, if we were honest, we all respond to sin in a couple different ways. The first way that we respond to sin, how do we respond to sin? Denial. Who, me? I didn't do it. That wasn't me. Nope, it's, that's, not on my, that's not on my history. You can't find it on my phone. I didn't do it. You remember, you remember, have you ever walked up to your 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 child or your grandchild and you know, like you said, like all over their face, there's chocolate chips. They got crumbs in their hands, but you ask them the question now, did you eat all the cookies? Oh no, not me. You're like, you little devil child. It's all over your face. I mean, you don't say that. I don't, don't say that. Sorry. <laughs> Edit that out. But, but you think, what? But you know what? Don't we do that same thing in front of the father? When he convicts us of our sin, we're like, well, you know, no, I, I didn't do that. Or our friend calls us out or somebody in a small group or they don't even call you out like that. They're just like, hey, I'm not sure that's how, how dare you judge me? It's like, dude, they just love you. They just want to make sure that they're trying to, you know, encourage you. Like, hey, man, that could really hurt you. That's dangerous. Be careful. Be careful. How do we respond to sin? If we don't deny, you know what we do? We blame. We blame. Well, you know, if so-and-so didn't say that, I wouldn't have said this. Ever done that? I have. Well, they caused me to do that because you know what? I just couldn't handle it. And I was sick of them. And I was gracious and gracious and gracious. And all of a sudden, I just blew up. I got tired of it. It's really their fault. That's what you're saying. And so you blame somebody else. Who are you blaming for your sin? Some of you are blaming people in your past. Some of you are blaming past tragedies, past traumas. You keep blaming, blaming, blaming. And you know what? It's hurting your behavior and your future. And it's ultimately sabotaging the movement of God in your life. See, what we're talking about today, DeRay did a really nice job talking about opposition and external things that really stunt and hurt the movement of God. Today, what I want to do is talk about the internal, the sin in our lives that can stunt the movement of God. So we not only deny and blame, but what do we do? Here's the third response to sin. We justify, justification. We justify our sin. So we deny, we blame, we justify. We justify things like this. Well, you know, um, you know, yeah, I, 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 I know I was, you know, I wasn't really gossiping. I mean, I was just sharing. It was the truth about the individual. And then the Holy Spirit whispers to you, or you have this sense inside of you. You don't even know it's Holy Spirit, but you just feel icky inside. That's the Holy Spirit. Cause you're like, I know I shouldn't be sharing something about someone else to someone else. When it's not to the benefit of the someone else that I'm sharing about, friends, you know what that's called? That's called gossip. That's sin. We've all done it, or we justify and say, "God, uh, here's another area. Oh, God, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't give financially, but you know, I serve." I serve, I'm, I'm really good at serving, but yeah, financially, I don't give. And 10%, really, God? Like, here's another justification. Let me give you another justification Here's Yeah, in the Old Testament, that's an Old Testament thing, but I'm not sure it's a New Testament thing. And then you have your 10 to go, to go-to verses say that's Old Covenant, not New Covenant. Okay, 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 okay. So you're going to stand before God one day and you're going to say, uh, God, I didn't tithe. I didn't really give a dime to you because uh, God, I thought it was an Old Testament thing. But when I read the New Testament, I see that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son and you gave everything. You gave your son for my sin. And so I just figured I would kind of dial it down in terms of my giving. Good luck. Have that conversation. That's on you, not me. Oh God. God, I, 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 you know what? I can't do that because that's too much and I'm too busy and the priorities in my life and you won't enact and say, what are the big rocks? Where's my worship? God, I can't go to the church today because you know what? It's too cold. The game's too good. I got a golf match. I can't. We have a myriad of excuses. Now, based on the sound level in the room, I'm going to stop right there because I feel like I'm meddling. I get it. I get it. This is how we respond to our sin. But there is a fourth option. The option that will infuse hope, that will give you the energy and the determination and the power by God's grace to change. Look at verse 2 of chapter 10. This is how the people respond. We saw how Ezra responded. Now we're going to see how the people respond. They say, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. We have been unfaithful to God for this sin. What do they do? They name it, they own it, and they admit it. They don't deny it, they don't blame somebody else for it, they don't try to justify it, what do they do? We have been unfaithful to our God because we have committed this sin of intermarrying. They own it, admit it, and they confess it. Confession is a powerful thing. Confession is where we are on the path and the journey to repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is a freeing thing, friends. Listen, that was the message of Jesus Christ. Sometimes repentance gets like a a bad, it's like a bad word in church. Like repentance is like, ooh, hellfire and brimstone. Repentance, oh, you're gonna guilt me and shame me. No, 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 no. Do you realize that Jesus' central message in the New Testament when he came, you can look it up uh, in in, in the gospels. his, His message was this, repent and believe for the kingdom of God has come near. His message was repentance because he knew repentance was good. Confession gets you right with God. Repentance keeps you right with God. Repentance is the the inner determination to say, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to take whatever steps I need to take in order to remove this sin from my life. That's what repentance is. And Jesus knew it was really good for us to repent. Why? Because that's what brings us hope. So here's the most important question of the weekend. Let me put it on you. Not as, how does Ezra respond to sin or the people respond to, How does God respond to your sin? In order to find that answer, we have to go back to what Ezra records after the people repent of their sin. We've been unfaithful to you, God. We shouldn't have intermarried. And this is what Ezra writes. He says, but in spite of this, there is still hope for you, Israel. If there's anything that I want you to hear today in relationship to your sin, I want you to hear this, that if you confess your sin, our God is faithful and just and he'll forgive you and cleanse you of all righteousness because it's his hope for you. It's his character. It is his posture and disposition toward you to forgive you. God is a forgiving and a redeeming kind of God. He loves you. So what do we do? We cry out and we confess. We confess. In fact, today we're going to come and we're going to, if you're in the room and you forgot to get communion elements, you can go in the back. If you're online, you're watching with us in just a moment, we're going to prepare ourselves to take communion. And communion doesn't save you. Communion just reminds you that, that man, I want to make sure that I remember that I am who I am because of Jesus Christ and I want to remember his sacrifice and communion gives us a moment to confess. Now, you might be from a Catholic tradition or another tradition where you would go to confessional and a priest would sit between, uh, you would you would have like a little, you know, wall there, confessional booth, and a priest would be on the other side and you would confess your sin. And they'd say, okay, now go do 10 Hail Marys and, you know, Scripture doesn't teach that confessional takes place between you and a priest. In fact, Scripture in the New Testament says that the veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross, meaning that God made a way for you to have full direct access that you you can pray directly to him and you can confess your sin and you will be forgiven. And you say, Adam, okay, wait a second, hold on, time out. Why? This is really important. Listen, lean in theologically. Why why am I confessing my sin if I'm already saved? That's a really good question. At salvation, what takes place is, think of in terms of a legal setting or a judicial hearing. God says this, you are forgiven. You are no longer guilty. The debt has been paid. It's been canceled because of Jesus Christ on the cross. And therefore, when you repent, you confess there, your salvation is sealed, secure. The Holy Spirit is in you. But why we confess moving forward is not from a legal or judicial viewpoint. It's more from a relational standpoint. We know this in relationships, don't we? When we sin against each other, that hurts the relationship. Think about it physiologically, your heart, you have arteries in your heart. When you eat bad foods and you continue to eat bad foods, you get all that bad stuff that gums up the arteries in your heart, eventually you're gonna whoop, fall over and have a heart attack. Why? Because you had a blockage. Sin blocks. It blocks you. And so we confess because we have an opportunity to say, God, I just wanna be free. I I, I wanna make sure relationally we're good and I wanna make sure